And so this, this series is called Emmanuel, God with us. That's what the word Emmanuel means. It's a, a name you tend to hear. It's a name we, we find in scripture, but it means God with us. If you don't have a Bible, just wave your hands in the air. We'll get Bibles to you. And uh, this series is going to be based in just two chapters, just two chapters of, uh, of our New Testament. Uh, when, when we get into our Bibles, we've got uh, four books that focus on the life of Jesus, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. And those four documents are called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And two of them, Matthew and Luke, give us the account of the birth of Jesus. So in Matthew 1 and 2, we get the story of Christmas. And in Luke 1 and 2, we get the story of Christmas. And it would be easy to think that that's it. Just like it's easy to think that Christmas happens at the end of December and it's the fault of all the commercial hype that we have to talk about it before then. It's easy to think, isn't it, that Christmas should be contained in some way. Now, I'm not saying we should multiply the commercialization. I'm not saying that the midwinter festival of gluttony is a good thing. But what I am saying is that the message of Christmas is not a once a year message. It's not a, a, a thing that we sort of do every December just to sort of give a real reason for all that's going on outside, uh, but then get back to the real stuff of Christianity because Christmas or the birth of Jesus is the real stuff of Christianity. It goes right to the, the core, if you like, of the DNA of our faith that God would choose to be with us. I think that, I hope that starting this series in November can keep us from thinking this is a tinsel series that's all about Christmas because it's that time of year. And instead, we can go into these first two chapters of Matthew and discover that this is relevant any time of year. That this is not just a once a year truth, this is a everyday, all the time reality. And so if you've got one of the church Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to page 803, which actually is not Matthew, it's Malachi. Page 803, you come to the end of the Old Testament, and then you turn the page, which I suppose would be 804, 805, and you've got a blank page. It's quite exciting, isn't it? I don't think we've ever dwelt on the fact we have blank pages in our Bibles. This is not for notes. This is just a divider between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see, Christmas, or the, the coming of God the Son to be one of us, is not just a two chapters here and a two chapters there truth. It's a truth that all the Bible, both Testaments, is pointing toward. And so if we, if we were to take our time and read through the Old Testament, that'd be a fun thing to do, uh, especially to try and do that in a church service. But if we were to try and read through the Old Testament... Uh, what is it, 900 and something chapters. It's quite a chunk of time, probably 55 hours of straight reading. As you go through that epic, just massive piece of, of literature, uh, all the, the God's uh, inspired stories, God's people, all the different things that go on, David and Goliath and all of that. As you trace through that, you might find, if it's your first time through, that it's a little bit overwhelming or second or third time, it's a little bit overwhelming. There's lots of people, there's lots of place names, there's, there's some pretty brutal wars and some horrible events, and, and it can all be a little bit confusing. Maybe you notice as you go through all the law that's there, just commandment after commandment, it can feel a little bit heavy. Or maybe if you're becoming a bit more familiar with it, you start to notice that all the way through, there's God's presence 
that he wants to be in the midst of his people. And there's God's promise. He wants to fix the problem that humanity is, is burdened with or really dead with, the problem of sin. And all the way through the Old Testament, we get these prophecies and these predictions and these anticipations that one day it's going to be resolved. One day it's going to be sorted out. And we get to the end of Malachi, turn the page, we've got a blank page, which maybe this is the most exciting blank page in all of literature, because this means, if you're reading through your Bible, that you're about to turn to the New Testament. You're about to, to, to turn the page and get this thrilling, climactic story of how God has dealt with our great problem of sin and death and hell. And so you rub the page and turn it over, and what do you find? A genie allergy. A bit disappointing, isn't it? A list of names. Really? You'd think it would start with a bang, wouldn't you? After all the build-up and the thousands of years of anticipation, you, you sort of think, okay, go on, let it rip, Lord, and you get a genealogy. And we're going to look at that genealogy today, and, and I want to tell you that my goal is that by the end of this message, you will not be disappointed that your New Testament starts with a genealogy. That's a pretty big aim. I'm, I'm aiming high today, but hopefully you'll not be disappointed because the genealogy actually, it turns out, is an amazing way to launch the story. Just, just look at it. We're not going to read it just yet, but just let your eyes scan down. You'll notice there are names you probably wonder how I'm going to pronounce. You might notice some names that you recognize. You might see the word and or the father of. There's a lot of repetition here. It doesn't feel like it's going to be the most thrilling of passages, right? But I want to tell you that this is an amazing way to launch into the story of the New Testament, to launch into the good news of God's Son becoming one of us. I'll give you three reasons. Three reasons why we should celebrate this genealogy. Three reasons why this genealogy makes a difference to us today. Number one. This genealogy tells us that the gospel, the good news, is not a fairy tale, it's rooted in history. That really matters. If you think about it, the, the, uh, the story of Jesus doesn't begin like all the great stories. All the great stories begin once upon a time, or in a galaxy far, far away. They're sort of just launched and you just kind of dive into the story, don't you? Suddenly that something's happening and you have to, to make sense of it and then you're in this world and this stuff is happening and it, it could be one of the greatest tales you've ever read but you know that it's just a tale because it begins with once upon a time because that's the way you begin a fairy tale, isn't it? That's the way you begin a fantasy. But when we turn to our New Testaments, it begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's not how you begin a fairy tale. That's how you begin an account of a life of somebody real. That's really important. The gospel is not a fairy tale. And sometimes when Christmas gets here and all the cards start flying around and, and on the one hand you've got Rudolph and Santa and flying you know, reindeer and on the other hand you've got nice little stable snow scenes and, and the donkeys and the sheep and everything's gloriously wonderful and happy and there's tinsel on both and there's brightness on both and there's light on both and, and you can easily fall into the trap of thinking, yeah, Christmas is the Christian fairy tale. 
It's just so picture perfect. There's no room in the inn, but it's okay. She had comfortable hay. And we can turn it into this really kind of nice picturesque story, almost as if it's a piece of ancient literature that has come down to us that somehow speaks into our real world and gives us some sort of example to live by. I don't know of what, but, but some sort of example to inspire us. But that's not the truth, is it? The truth is that this is not a tale, this is not a myth, this is not a legend, This is reality. And here on the page in front of us, there are 42 points of historical reality, 42 touchdowns through the generations that say to us, this is real. These were real people with real life issues, with real struggles and real doubts and real spouses and real children. And when they were the father of, they like celebrated because it's a baby boy or whatever. And there was a reality to it, just like we experience because the gospel is rooted in history. It's not a fairy tale. This is not a a place we gather to hear an inspiring set of old stories. Uh, We gather around this book and we, if you like, honor the book, not as a a thing in itself, but as a, a revelation from God, as a historically accurate document from human history that is verifiable. If we had the time, we could go through this list of names and we could cross-check with archaeology and with other sources to say, yep, 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 and prove that this is reality. 42 touchdown points through these generations leading us to the touchdown point where God came to be one of us. If you read in Luke, past the Christmas passages in Luke 1 and 2 you get to Luke 3 and he gives us a genealogy as well and if you compare the two you'll notice some differences in Luke I think it's 70 odd generations and it goes right the way back to Adam in Matthew it's 42 it goes back to Abraham you'll notice that there are some differences between the two genealogies now some people see that and sort of panic like ah I thought the Bible was supposed to be true Maybe they didn't get their heads together and, uh, and sort of share information well enough and, and, and they've diverged and they've messed it up. But actually, if you just think about it, there's, there's a lot of theory and a lot of explanation, but just think about your own family line. You go back, say, to your father and then go through his mother's line. It's going to be different than if you go through your father's father's line, right? At some point within the history of multiple generations, the line can go in different directions and still be leading to you. It's true for all of us. None of us have a single line that goes through history back to Noah or wherever you want to trace it to. We have multiple lines that come down to us. And so it's not a problem. It's not an issue that Luke's Uh, account of the genealogy of Jesus has some similarities to Matthew's and it has some differences. I'm not going to get into the theories and the explanations. I'm just going to say it's not a problem because so does yours, so does mine. It's historical. It's rooted in history and that's a real blessing to us because we're dealing with fact when we're talking about Jesus. But the second reason why we should be thankful for this genealogy is because it is shaped by God's promise plan. Now take a look at it again. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's kind of summary form, isn't it? And then if you let your eyes go down, you'll notice in verse 2 it begins with Abraham. 
In the middle of verse 6, we start another paragraph and it mentions David. You go down to verse 12 and it mentions a deportation to Babylon. And then down to verse 17 where we get a summary in sums where it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. It's like Matthew saying to us, I don't want you to miss this. Abraham, David, deportation, Jesus. Those are the highlights. Those are the the landmarks. He wants you to see it. He tells you in verse 1. He summarizes in verse 17. And he structures it in that way. So what's the deal with Abraham, David, deportation? Are these kind of like the, the high points of the history of Israel? Maybe. Abraham was significant. He was the one that God called to to kind of create this nation. He made a a promise to him that he was going to become a a great nation and so on. And David was a great king. And well, the deportation wasn't a great moment. It's not that that they were great men specifically, although in some ways they might have been. It's that this was significant points in the history I'm not going to go into massive detail, but let me just give you a quick overview of the whole story of the Bible using those points. Remember right back at the beginning in Genesis when when God made everything, everything was good, and then sin got in. Adam and Eve sinned, and there was this massive meltdown. Everything was corrupted. Everything was ruined, and God made a promise. He said that the seed of the woman, male, child, descendant, the seed of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent. That sin and Satan would be defeated by a male descendant. Eve had a child. She thought this was it. Here he is, but it wasn't him. And you go down through the generations and down the generations you get to Abraham. Now if we had time, we could trace how through those generations all the way down from Adam to Abraham, there was just a lot of sin and faithlessness and and all sorts of mess that we humans are so good at. In fact, if ever God needed a reason to just wipe his hands and start again, he kind of had it all the way through. Had it in Garden of Eden, he had it in Noah's day, he had it right the way down the Tower of Babel, all of that. It was on human level, it was a mess. But this is what I love about God, where he has every reason to wipe his hands and to just say, done with humanity, let me try again. Instead of doing that, he leans in and he says, yeah, let me remind you of my promise. I promised that I would take care of this. Let me remind you. And so you get to Abraham and God adds detail. It's going to come through Abraham, this descendant, this seed. The seed of the woman is going to be the seed of Abraham. And and Abraham's name is going to be made great. And and they're going to become this great nation. And they're going to, not just they, he, the seed, is going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Wow. Abraham was significant because of God's promise. And then you go down through the generations, about a thousand years from the time of Abraham to the time of David. And there was so much that went wrong. So much sin. So much faithlessness unfaithfulness so many reasons for God to wipe his hands and be done with us and in the time of David God leaned in and he said let me give you some more detail on that promise that I'm not forgetting that I'm going to keep and he told David 
that David was going to have a household, a dynasty that was going to be built. He was going to have a throne that would endure forever and his seed would be on that throne and that throne would be established over the whole world and it would be the law for all of humanity and peace would eventually come and David's name would still be attached. And David was just blown away. He's like, what What are you doing, Lord? Why would you do that for me? Why would you promise that? After all that's happened, all that we've done, all that we have done to deserve the exact opposite and yet you've made this amazing promise because God doesn't pull away from us. He leans into us and he adds and gives more detail to the promise. And so that's about a thousand years BC. You fast forward another few hundred years and David's son became king and he created a mess and then the nation divided and basically after that, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom was a train wreck, both of them, especially the north, just an absolute mess of sin and faithlessness and unfaithfulness and spiritual adultery and all these things that were so heinous and so offensive to God. And surely when you're reading through Kings, if you go through that part of the Old Testament, you go, oh, if ever God's going to give up on people, it's here. And what does he do? You get the prophets and the prophets come along and they speak to the nation and they say, you've blown it. You've blown it. The the old covenant, the covenant that was established between Israel and God, you've messed it up completely and you're going to be taken away into exile. You're going to be deported by the Babylonians. But God is faithful even if you're not. And by the way, God's going to make a new covenant. And he's going to make a new covenant and he's going to put things right and he's going to change your hearts and he's going to give you his spirit and he's going to forgive your sins. And, And there's all of this detail that's added yet again around the time of the deportation. That's why we've got Abraham and then David and then the deportation as the structure of the genealogy because the whole story of the Old Testament is a story of human unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness. It's a story of our failure and it's a story of God's leaning in to continually remember the promise that he made right at the beginning and to keep adding more detail when we deserved anything but. And so when you look at this genealogy, we're going to read it in a second, but isn't it amazing to think that this isn't just a random set of names. This is a set of names that were taken from history by Matthew in order to say to us, God is a God who makes promises and keeps them. God is a God who has a plan and he's working it out. All the way through from Genesis onwards, tick, tock, tick. Talk. The clock is ticking and Abraham receives a promise. Tick tock. It's still ticking and you get to David a thousand years later. Tick tock. It's still ticking and you get to the deportation and it seems like a total failure. Tick tock. God is still working out his purposes. It's like the sand dropping through a sand timer. God is working out his plan and the moment is coming and the end of the story is arriving. And by the way, here's the end of the story it's Jesus. He's the one. Here's the plan all the way through, building, 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 and it all leads to baby Jesus. God's great sin-conquering, life-giving, Satan-destroying plan wrapped up in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Amazing, isn't it? God's got a plan. 
And as we jump into to Matthew's gospel, it would be easy to think, oh, we're looking at a fairy tale. No, we're looking at history. We're looking at truth. We're looking at reality. It would be easy to think, oh, this is just, you know, a, a nice sort of story dropped in out of nowhere. No, it's not dropped in out of nowhere. It was God's plan being worked out. The amazing thing is that that plan is still being worked out. Just if you, if you look at any name on this list, for the vast majority of their life, in some cases for the entirety of their life, they had no idea that they were part of this. For a lot of these people, they lived their lives and they went through their struggles and they, they, they suffered and they died without having a clue that they would get to be in the list of names that starts the New Testament. No idea at all that they were in the line of the Messiah. Almost like us, living normal lives with normal struggles, wondering how we're going to get through this week and how we're going to get past Tuesday when, you know, I can't fit it all in. And, and then the doctors visit and what is that, you know, thing that's growing on my elbow or whatever. We've got all of these kind of normal, this life kind of issues. And it's easy for us to think that we're just living our lives and the clock is ticking on us and our time will be done and that's the end. And then you read a genealogy like this and you realize God's got a plan. And he was working it out for centuries. Life after life after life. And he never dropped the ball and he never made a mistake and he never let the line die and it never went wrong. God was in charge and God is working it out. And that gives us confidence, doesn't it? That even today, if God's got a plan and a purpose, which the Bible clearly shows it does, he does for his church, then we can be confident. Even when we cannot see where the story's going, we can rest assured that our lives and our church are part of what God is doing. So this genealogy is great because it's rooted in history. It's wonderful because it's shaped by God's great promise. But here's the best bit. That the reason that I love this genealogy, even more than those first two reasons, although I'm not going to discount them because they're so significant, but the biggest deal of all is that shaped by God's plan, this genealogy is colored in by God's grace. Let me read it to you, and then I'll tell you what I mean by that. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez. And Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of... Oh, I'm always tempted to say Salmon. But it's Salmon, isn't it? It's clearly his name was Salmon. So, Nashon, the father of Salmon. Not a Salmon. That would be very strange. Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. You keeping up? (laughs) 
And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, we're in verse 12, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, or Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Atzor, and Atzor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer. We're getting towards the bottom now, verse 15. And Eliezer the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. That's a genealogy for you. And you can be thankful you weren't asked to do the reading this Sunday. Why do I say this is colored in by grace? This is really, for me, the most important thing that I want us to see in this, in this uh, list of names here. It would be easy, maybe you noticed if, uh, as we were going, some names that you recognized, it would be easy to wear rose-tinted glasses and in this list to say, oh, there are some heroes of the faith here. Abraham, the great father of faith, and who else do we have? Well, Jacob, I mean, well, he... He was productive, we can at least give him that. You know, he had 12 sons and a daughter and that kind of made Israel possible, I suppose. And who, well, Boaz, he was a properly good egg, wasn't he? Boaz was a fine chap. Uh, Ruth was a tremendous uh, lady. Who else do we have here? Anyone else we want to celebrate? There's a few. But actually, that's kind of missing the point, isn't it? If you look at this list of names, there's a whole lot of dysfunction here. There's a whole lot of sin here. Abraham gave his wife away twice. God had to rescue her because he had issues. Isaac did it as well. Got rid of his wife or tried to. Jacob, issues galore with him. What about David? I mean, David took somebody else's wife and then had the somebody else killed. And Matthew wants us to remember that because he doesn't name the woman, Bathsheba in that case. He names her former husband, the one that, David had killed Uriah and then the whole deportation to Babylon that was like the great shame on the nation for their disobedience to God this is a list of human unfaithfulness of human dysfunction and and I haven't even mentioned the fact that we've got very unusually some women included Unusual because in those days, a genealogy was quite a simple process. You just list the father to the father, son to the son to the son to the son. You just go by the men. Easy. But Matthew gives us some women. Why does he list these women? Why does he tell us about Tamar in verse 3? Why does he tell us about um, Rahab in verse 5 and Ruth in verse 5? Why does he mention uh, the wife of Uriah in verse 6? These weren't the sort of hero women. What's the word for that? Heroines of the Old Testament. In, in most cases, uh, the, these were not the, the, the best. Ruth maybe, but the others. Tamar. She was uh, a foreign. They were all foreigners, I think, these four, in all, in all likelihood. But that's not the biggest issue. The, the biggest issue is, I think, that all of them had a big question mark over their moral purity. 
Tamar was married to the sons of Judah, one after the other, and they died, and she hadn't had a son, and, and Judah was withholding his third son, so Tamar dressed up as a shrine prostitute and tricked her father-in-law in order to get pregnant. That's not, not ideal, is it? It's not the story you want to be telling your children on Christmas Eve. Rahab. I always feel sorry for Rahab. She's gone into eternity, known as Rahab the, you know, fill in the blank. I mean, talk about a career that you can't shake. I mean, here's a woman actually of faith who who rescued God's people and was was involved and trusted him and so on. But she's probably still known today in heaven. Oh, you're Rahab the, you know, she's got that forever because she was that. She had a job and she worked at night and she had a reputation and... Here's a woman with a question mark hanging over her. Ruth. Now, Ruth was a fine, fine woman. I mean, absolutely uh, unimpeachable in many ways. But we can't get away from the fact that she did make uh, her boss drunk and then lie down at his feet in the middle of the night. I mean, it was uh, as much as we want to dress it up as being, you know, some sort of spiritual thing. It wasn't. It was her mother-in-law's plan to get her pregnant. If ever there's an awkward situation, Ruth put herself right in it. And yet Boaz's integrity protected her and and she didn't do anything she shouldn't have and praise the Lord. But still, question mark, question mark, question mark. And who's the other one? I missed somebody. Oh, Uriah's wife. Having a shower and the king saw her from his balcony and brought her into the palace and it was the, the greatest royal scandal of ancient Israel. He'd made somebody else's wife pregnant. Now, why would we want to have in the line of Jesus these four women with this question mark hanging over them, this integrity issue hanging over them, even if in each case there was a righteousness and a faithfulness about them? The answer is simple, because there's a fifth woman. Down in verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, Actually, he was the fiancé of Mary who was pregnant with Jesus. And a virgin in the town of Nazareth was an absolute miracle. I mean, it was a horrible place to be, but she was that. She was a pure and just a really special person, and yet she was pregnant. And so she had this question mark hanging over her. And as awkward as that was, it brings us right to the heart of the point of this genealogy, doesn't it? That God's plan was not to sort of come in for the best of the best and be the best of the best and make good things better. It was to come into the mess of humanity with all the shame and all the, the guilt and all the sin and all the fluttering question marks and to come in and to rescue us from sin. The whole story is a story of a rescue. The whole story is a story of the fact that only one person can save us from the sin that has so entangled and wrapped itself around humanity. And the genealogy says to us, not only is that story rooted in history, and not only is that story shaped by God's plan, it's a story that's colored from beginning to end by God's grace. They didn't deserve this. None of them were good enough. But Jesus came into a world full of sinful people like you and me with all of our shame and all of our guilt and all of the baggage and all of the question marks. And he came to be one of us and to die in our place so that we could be one with him.
That's why I love this genealogy. Rooted in history, shaped by God's promise, colored by God's grace. (laughs) Makes me want to keep reading. Makes me want to see what happens next, which is what we're going to do next week. But for now, we're just going to stop there. Let me pray and then we're going to have the band come, come back up. I'll leave you with a question. We haven't got time to discuss it now, but, but I'd encourage you later to look through that list and ask yourself, okay, what names in this list scream God's grace to me? Not, not, not who are the heroes or who are the most impressive, but who are the ones that messed up? Who are the ones who sinned? Who are the ones that that I know their story and it's not pretty picture? Who is it in this list of names that makes you even more grateful that Jesus came for us? Let me pray and the band will come back to the front. (coughs) Lord, we do want to thank you so, so much that your plan has been and is being worked out and your plan is gracious and it is grace filled from beginning to end Lord we don't come to you deserving in fact we come completely undeserving of your grace but we thank you thank you for coming in to rescue people such as us thank you for coming in with a family as messed up as that list of names and thank you that you look past all of that And you see in us something that you value, even where we are so worthless in ourselves. Your love is amazing. Your grace thrills our hearts. And we pray that as we go through these next weeks, we will be gripped in a way that we've never been gripped before by the fact that you would come into our world, become one of us, so that we can be one with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.